0: Hey, welcome to the online ministry at Coastal Community Church. I want to thank you so much for checking us out. And we're so grateful that these sermons online are benefiting uh, your spiritual growth. Uh, But one of the things we have a deep conviction of at Coastal Community Church is that you're a part of a local church. And so uh, while we want these sermons to supplement your spiritual growth, we also want to encourage you to find a local church. So if you're in our community, we'd love for you to visit us. Check us out. We're on 101 Village Avenue in Yorktown. And uh, we have three service times on Sunday morning that you can see if you can be a part of our community. Community. the service times are 8 9:30 and 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings and so we'd love for you to visit us um, when you visit us this summer we're going to be doing a, a new series called one and uh, we're going to be taking our church body through uh, the letter of Corinthians 1 Corinthians that Paul writes a letter to the Church of Corinth and the letter is written because Paul is horrified to find out that this church is not unified together as a body um, to make Jesus Christ famous in their community and I find that interesting because we We live in a culture where I think sometimes we're uh, shocked when a church is working in unity. And so that's what we want to be a Coastal Community Church. We want to be a church that works in unity uh, so that we can better uplift the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll join us for this new series as we go through 1 Corinthians. The series is called One. We have much to be thankful for, don't we, church? And we have a great country. And happy 4th of July to each of you. And I just thought it would be great to take a moment and thank the Lord Uh, for our country and pray for our leadership of this country. Um, Romans 13, the Apostle Paul reminds us as believers, it's our job to submit to our governing authorities. They didn't get there by accident. The Lord placed them there and uh, as well as pray for our leaders. And so, um, so I want to take a moment this morning and pray. Those of you men and women that serve our country, thank you very, very much. We uh, love and appreciate each of you and uh, for your service as countries. Let's bow as followers of Jesus, and let's pray for our wonderful country. Thank the Lord and pray for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, um, I always love and am reminded when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and submitted to the ruler and the government official, yet reminded him that there's no authority unless God grants it. And so, um, we recognize what a great country you've given us to live in. It's unique, God. We have, we have unique rights as citizens that, that very few people… Uh, that have ever walked the planet have, God, and so we are grateful, and we're, we're thankful for the many freedoms that we do enjoy, Lord, and we understand that freedom is a gift. Uh, we understand that freedom comes at a cost. Our, our freedom in the gospel uh, came at the cost of Your Son being sacrificed for our sin, and so... Uh, We recognize, even in this country, the freedoms that we enjoy come with many, many folks making sacrifices for that freedom, and so we give pause, and we give you thanksgiving, and we give you praise, and uh, we lean into the teaching of your word, Romans 13, where we're reminded to pray for those in authority over us, Lord. I pray for our president, Supreme Court, our federal government, God. There's so many decisions that need to be made, and uh, that affects so many people, and I pray that our governing officials would be leaning into you. The book of James says, if we lack wisdom, we can ask, and you give generously. And I, I pray that our, our governing officials would uh, seek wisdom. And Lord, I want to pray for our churches, God, in across America. I pray for the ones that have strayed from your word and think that somehow preaching the ideas of man is better than leaning into the word of God. I pray for those churches that there would be a conviction of sin and rebellion and disobedience, God, and that these churches would return to the word as the word, as the authority over us and preach it, God. I I pray for our churches that God that we would not shy away from the truth, but we would die to ourselves, we would be generous with our love. Uh, but not yield from what the Word of God says. And God, I pray that there would be a great spiritual awakening in our culture, God, that, uh, that there would be a great conviction of sin uh, and a return to the gospel of Jesus Christ as proclaimed to us through the Word of God in our local churches. And so I pray for a great awakening, a great movement, God. And I pray that you'd start with us as individuals, Lord, if there's areas in our lives where we are giving in to temptation and sin, that we would repent and we would believe anew and afresh in the gospel. And Lord, on this 4th of July, as probably many of us get a day off and we celebrate, God, I pray that we would also be a people that are very, very thankful for the freedoms that we have. As this video remind, reminded me, not, not everybody around the world has the many blessings that we have. And so we give you thanksgiving, we give you praise, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, guys, do me a favor, get your Bibles out. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in a chair in front of you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or you cannot afford a Bible, do me a favor, take that one with you, okay? That was, that's our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of the Word of God. And uh, we're continuing a series called One, and uh, we're taking the summer and we're going through the letter of First Corinthians. It's a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a city called Corinth. And uh, we broke up Chapter Seven into two parts because it was so long. So uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians Chapter Seven, Verse Seventeen. Uh, there is a um, there's a handout in your bulletin. You can follow along with me there. I would encourage you to take notes. You always kind of remember more of the things that you write down. And uh, we're in this section of this letter where the Apostle Paul uh, is taking questions, and I love that. I actually, one of my favorite pastors in America, actually I think he's semi-retired now, but, but uh, Pastor John Piper, if you go to YouTube, um, he will take questions from his YouTube followers and he'll answer them. And uh, I love that, and the questions span the gamut. There's some questions that uh, you're afraid I'm going to say one, aren't you? So the questions he takes, just blocking my mic off. Uh, So the questions he takes, are, uh, I'd be embarrassed to ask some of them from the pulpit this morning, but uh, he takes them, he answers them from a biblical perspective, and I just love that. And when I'm doing kind of administrative work around here, I'll put that on and listen to that, and, and, and and I love that. But I think, man, how awesome would it be to ask the Apostle Paul some questions, right? Like, what would you ask this Apostle? And so, you know, we learn, for from from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that the people of Corinth had actually written a letter to the Apostle Paul with some questions. And then most of the back end of the letter is answering these various questions, right? So he says, in verse 1 of chapter 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he says, You wrote to me, and I'm now going to answer them. And so in quotations, they had a question. Is it good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman? And so that's what uh, Pastor Andrew kind of unpacked last week, okay? And so Paul, he's going, to, he's going to come back to some of their questions that we'll, we'll uh, look at in verse 25 in just a minute. But from verse 17 to verse 25, what Paul does is he's addressing kind of the worldview or the thinking of the Corinthians, Okay, and so he, in the middle of answering these two questions, he said, man, you guys have kind of this distorted worldview that I just need to address, and, and the worldview is this that they've become Christians, okay? And if you remember now, the the movement of the church is new. Like, there's this new covenant, new movement of the gospel. And so, you know, we don't have a lot of insight. Uh, These folks did not have the New Testament to look at. And so, they're wondering, hey, I'm new in Christ. I'm a new believer. And so, does that mean, as a new Christian, that I get to change my circumstances, you know, I was, all these circumstances of my life up to this point happened uh, as an unbeliever, now I'm a believer. So they're asking questions like, you know what, I, 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 when I got married I wasn't a Christian. Can I, As a Christian now, can I get unmarried? Can I have a do-over kind of thing, right? Uh, or, or I got married to, to an unbeliever. I'm, I'm now a Christian and so my, my spouse is not yet a believer. Can I, can I punt this one to the curb and can I start new and find maybe a believing spouse? Some of them are asking the questions like, "Hey, I, 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 before I became a Christian, I was single, and now I'm a single Christian. Should I should I rush off and get married? Should I find a Christian spouse?" Uh, some of the questions he got were, well, "You know, I, I, when I became a Christian, I was a slave. Should I leave? Should I run away from my master?" And by the way, I'm not going to deal with it this morning. I dealt with it. Back in January, we took the church to the book of Philemon and we dealt with the idea of what does the New Testament say about slavery? And, and, and you guys can look that up there, okay? I'm not going to deal with that this morning. Uh, he answers the question because some of them say, well, listen, I became a Christian and, and I was circumcised. And, should I become uncircumcised or vice versa is one of the questions. Which I'm like, that's weird. I don't get that. But anyway, I'll let you figure that out on your own. And so, and so Paul speaks into these questions and he addresses them. And, and here's the thing, okay, church, I want you to hear me on this. I think his bigger point here is that we sometimes get sideways. We get motivated. Our our energies go in the wrong areas in churches because the, the ultimately the gospel is is not about social upheaval right we can or politics or solving all of the world's injustices to be sure the gospel touches those things to be sure we should love the things God loves and hate the things God hates. But if we ever lose the central theme of the gospel, the church loses its power. The central theme of the gospel is your heart is in rebellion to, the, to your creator because of sin. You're dead in your sins, and you need a new life. You need to be made alive to the things of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your sin had to have a payment, which was paid for by Jesus. The Son of God, and He rose again, authenticating His claims, and that when we bow in need to His Lordship, we get the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us and molds us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. It's not social change. It's not politics. It's not cultural movements. And I see churches spend a lot of time on this, and they miss the greater movement and the power of God. And I think that's what Paul is addressing. The gospel is about the human heart. Nothing about our social standings change our ability to serve the Lord wherever we are. And so Paul makes this main principle. He says you need to live as you were originally called in Christ. Live as you were called. Check this out in verse 17 of chapter 7. Paul says, "...only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him." and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not... Seek to remove the marks of circumcision Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Weird, I know verse nineteen for neither circumcision counts or anything nor an uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. each of one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when you were called, do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Verse 24, 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each of you was called, let him remain with God. In other words, Paul three times here says, God has given you an assignment. You were called, you were assigned. Don't, don't assume that your current circumstances are an accident. God, God, this is a rest or a leaning into the sovereignty of God. And my placement in life, where God has me, is what God has assigned me to. Now I know sometimes we get, and our circumstances are difficult, and we think, man, God, I thought when I became a Christian, like all the difficulty was going to go away. Sometimes it's quite the opposite. Sometimes the more we lean into and serve God, the more difficult our circumstances become. And Paul is saying just because your circumstances are difficult doesn't mean you need to change out of the circumstances. That God is sovereign. He's placed you where you are and you can serve him exactly where you are. That doesn't mean there's not a dream in your heart that you shouldn't pursue. But I don't know if you're going to attain the dream or not. In fact, God's Word does allow, letter B, for bettering your position in life. And that's what Paul addresses in verse 21 when he's talking to the, those who were slaves and they had masters. He said, if you can gain your freedom, take, avail yourself of the opportunity, go for it. But the issue Paul is getting at is we don't need to be fixated on the next big thing We can use our current circumstances, and we just sang this, right? Glory to God, as we were singing that. I'm like, I was thinking about each, I was thinking about you guys as we were singing that song. I'm like, you know, some of you right now as you're singing glory to God, man, your situation at work, your situation at home, your situation in community, so difficult. And I wanna encourage you, we can still give praise and worship and glory to God, regardless of the circumstances. In fact, sometimes, difficult circumstances heightens the opportunity to give glory to God, yes? Absolutely. And so sometimes maybe we get, God, I just want to be freed from these circumstances, and it's the circumstances that God is using to make Him famous, maybe not you. I, I was reading a, a book this week um, from, that was written by the president of the uh, college I went to. He's not the president anymore, but he was when I went there, a guy by the name of Joe Stahl. And um, I went to a, a Bible college called Moody Bible Institute. It's very well known for training Christian leaders, missionaries, and pastors, and uh, just had a tremendous, you know, through almost 100-year institutions, just had a tremendous influence for the cause of Christ and training young leaders around the world. And, um, and, and so uh, President Stoll told, told this story that uh, about uh, his father and how his father uh, Uh, was a first-generation believer, and how he pastored a a sizable church. I believe it was in New Jersey. But he talks about how his father got saved under the ministry of a pastor in a small town in Michigan. He said this church was so small, and this pastor spent his whole life pastoring this small church, and he probably went to his grave wondering, you know, God, where's the influence? Where's the impact I get to have for the gospel? It, he, he got to lead Joe Stoll's dad to the Lord, who then went on to pastor a church, who then raised up boys, who went in the ministry. And here, you know, President Stoll was the president of a sizable Bible college that you know, has trained thousands and thousands of spiritual leaders. And the point I'm making is you never know what God is doing in and through your life, through the influence. You may think, I don't have any influence. You never know what God is doing to use your life to lift up the name and fame of Jesus Christ. It may even be generational. You may, it may be in your life you don't see it like you hope to, right? right? Remember Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and Abraham doesn't have any kids. How am I going to be a great nation? I don't have any kids. And he tries to thwart, do God's plan on his own, so he does have one kid, but it wasn't the child of promise. And finally, late in life, the Bible says his body was as good as dead. God gave him one kid one kid, to fulfill this promise. But through that, and we know that Abraham wasn't just, a, wasn't just a national heritage, it was a spiritual heritage, that the lineage of Christ, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Old Testament, New Testament picture, you're, you're a child of Abraham, essentially. And so, man, there's a spiritual heritage through one child. But Abraham didn't see the full fruit of that. And so, we, as Christians, we don't have to unshackle ourselves from our circumstances. Our current setting could be what God is using to make His name and fame through your life. He may be doing more than you realize. Now, so Paul kind of addresses that, okay? Now he comes back to his questions. Now, here's where this, this sermon's going to take a right turn, right? And I'm going to preach on something that I've never preached on before, all right? Um, and so uh, we're going to, here's what we're going to spend the rest of the sermon doing. It's going to be a unique sermon, uh, but I want you to have a, new, and, and as I was prepping this sermon, I, was, I got more and more excited about it, okay, what we're going to look at this morning. We are going to take a heightened view, it's the Apostle Paul's view, of being single, okay? And we're going to celebrate our single. So, so let's do this. How many of you in the room this morning are single? Raise your hand. Raise your hand high. Be proud of it, all right? All right. I'm the only one clapping for you. But that's great, okay? And so Paul now addresses the question of being single. Now, um, there wasn't a ton of hands that went up, so I'm assuming some, most of you are married, or like, I'm not raising my hand, okay? Yeah, maybe that's you, or maybe you're only dating and you weren't sure. You started to raise your hand, you got elbowed. You're not single. Did you change your status on Facebook, you know? So you weren't really sure, I get that too. All right, so 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21. Now concerning the betrothed, Paul says, so this is coming back to the questions. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And so Paul now takes the rest of this passage to highlight and encourage singleness. He encourages remaining single. Paul does not forbid marriage, but he gives us something to consider, all right? So for those of you who are married and you're about to check out, all right, these singles have heard countless sermons on marriage, okay? Today they get their due, all right? And so I want to encourage you, man, I want you to listen to this. I want you to maybe use it to influence some of the singles in your life. Uh, and I want to raise the view of being single. And I think what you're going to see is really, if you studied the culture in which the Apostle Paul is writing, it's, it's in some ways not much different than our culture. In ancient Near Eastern culture, singles were often thought of as a, a second-class citizen. Even in the church, they were thought of as second-class. They, they were thought of as people that didn't have a heritage. They didn't, they didn't have any lasting impact on their, on their culture, and, and they didn't have, even in the church, They were not viewing singles as having the ability to leave a spiritual heritage. Now, there's plenty of biblical evidence. I've preached countless sermons on the importance of marriage. Okay, We know that marriage and family is a good thing, but Paul here teaches something that I think the church needs to reclaim. The church needs to consider, the the church needs to think about. Paul offers to us the opportunity and for our consideration that it is possible to even have a more effective life for the gospel and for the kingdom of God as a single. And so the, the rest of my this sermon, I just, my hope is that you'll just think differently because as I as I, as I unpack this passage in my mind, I realize, man, I have never preached on this. I've never given this the kind of attention that I needed to. So, here we go, ready? The Apostle Paul heightens the view of being single. First, he says, being single can avoid the pressure of a hostile world. Can avoid the pressure of the hostile world. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 26. Paul says, I think that in view of the present distress it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. What's Paul talking about here? Notice he uses the phrase, the present distress. I think what Paul is anticipating and maybe already experiencing is is persecution. Now, um, I don't know if you're aware of church history, but the early church suffered unimaginable persecution. And I love the video that we showed this morning. Persecution is as rampant across the world now of Christians. And and I'm not talking about, like in America, when I think say persecution, we think, yeah, you know, man, like, I'm, you know, it's usually a health issue. I'm battling this, I'm struggling with this. I'm talking, when I say persecution, I'm talking about suffering because you're a Christian. And, and I, I just want to... I, you know, This is not a prophetic statement, because if I'm wrong, you'll have to stone me, and I don't want to get stoned, okay? Um, but yeah, let's take that back. Um, let's, um, some of y'all like, now I know why they were laughing in the first service. I just got it. Get your minds out of the gutter. Okay, here we go. Um, I, I think persecution may be coming to the church in America. I think it's going to get more and more difficult to, to be a Christian in, the, in American culture. I hope I'm wrong, but, man, I see the tide turning in a cultural way in, faster than I could have ever imagined. And I think if you're going to stand on the truth of the Word of God, and you're going to call yourself a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're going to call righteousness righteous and unrighteousness unrighteous, and, and stand on holiness and truth, man, I think it's going to get more uncomfortable for us as Christians. I could even envision, it's not that hard for my mind to go to, man, here's how, this is what it could look like. I, again, I, ho- I could be wrong, and, and I hope because I love my freedom, and I know you do too, I, I hope I'm wrong, but th- there's another side of me. It's like, you know what, it also excites me because whenever the church is persecuted, the church grows like crazy. There's only one place in the world that the church is dying, and it's in the Western cultures, right? Europe and America. The church is dying, Man, I'm like, Lord, do what you need to do to to make the truth of the gospel go forward. But I think Paul is preparing these Corinthians with, man, persecution is coming. In fact, just uh, one of the things I've been doing on my own, in my own personal reading, is, I've, and I've never done this more, much to my embarrassment, I'm reading through the Bible chronologically, which is interesting. And so one of the things I'm noticing is I'm reading through the New Testament, and, and as we've already highlighted, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest letters, one of the earliest letters we have to the New Testament churches, and then as you get to, chronologically to the back-end letters that, that, that are written to the churches, they start, the authors start dealing with persecution, 1 Peter be prepared to suffer. Hebrews, which we looked at last summer, be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to suffer for the cause of the gospel. And I think Paul is preparing the Corinthian church. You know, not shortly after the penning of this letter, Emperor Nero, who, who was the emperor who was in charge at the time, he, he perfected the ways of torturing Christians. One of the things he used to do for Christians is he would, he would wrap them in animal skins and turn wild dogs loose on these Christians. One of the things Emperor Nero would do to Christians is he would dip them in wax and then hang them in his garden and light them on fire as torches for his garden. In, in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is one of the early testaments of early Christian martyrdom, one of the very first martyrs that we know of, that we have in recorded history, is of the treasurer of the city of Corinth. He was persecuted and killed because he was a Christian And I think what Paul is saying to these Christians, these singles, is, hey, don't rush into marriage because there's going to be distress for being a Christian, and when you have a family, it's more to think about. Yes? I mean, that's just normal stuff. I know I think about that. Like, man, if this happened, like, would, how will my family, be, how will my wife be taken care of? It? How will my children be provided for? And so Paul is just being very practical here. Like, adding a family when they're suffering for the cause of the gospel, it, it leads to having more to be concerned about. It's very practical. Number two, Paul is being honest. He says, listen, when you get married, you marry another sinner. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Y'all did, like, so the married people are like, oh yeah, I got that. So single people don't always know that, okay? So listen, if you get married, you're going to marry another sinner, all right? They're not perfect. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you haven't sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned yet. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. I love this advice, and I, w- I just want to spare you from that. Isn't that great? Like, you single people might not know this, like, Sometimes in marriage you fight. Nobody? None of y'all do that? Like sometimes you got, like if you're married, you, you've, got, you've got to figure out, you have to, as a married couple, singles, they have to spend time figuring out how to get along. They have to, married people have to figure out how to budget. They have to sit down and agree. Sometimes singles, married people fight over how to use their money. Shocking, right? Like That happens. And I think Paul's being real practical here. He's saying, look, if you remain single, there's certain things that to have a good and solid marriage, you have to give your time and you have to give your attention to that you should do, that if you're single, you don't have to do. That's time, talent, and treasure that you can go invest in the kingdom of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I, you know, I stand up here often and say, listen, don't idolize marriage because you're going to marry another sinner. Hopefully a Christian that's growing in their process of sanctification, being more and more like Christ, but they're still going to disappoint you. No person can complete you. You complete me. Stop. You had me at hello. Okay? Like, no. Like, so Pastor Andrew made a great point last week that, that the first 17 verses are marrieds. Focus on Christ. Singles, focus on Christ. That's who's going to complete you, not the other person. And so he's trying to spare singles, like this is the reality. The third thing is, Paul's saying, I think he's saying singles can focus on eternal things. You can focus on things of the kingdom, things of the gospel, furthering the name and fame of Christ. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown short. From now on, let those who have wives, live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they are not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal in the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. He's saying this, our energies as best we can should be focused on the things of eternity, on the things of the kingdom. We have this very short time called life to make a difference for the gospel, and being single allows a person to focus more on the things of the kingdom. Because when you get married, you do have other concerns, and they're good concerns, but they're tensions that we have to live between. You know, I know as a father in in our home where there's five of us, right, I have two biblical mandates. 2 Corinthians 8, I'm told to be generous with my financial resources. Now, I'm not here to preach a whole sermon on generosity. I think giving of a tithe is the beginning point of being generous, is the beginning point. And then I have 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, which tells me that a man who doesn't take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. And so I have these tensions that I'm supposed to be generous, but I'm also supposed to provide for my family. And then you have the tensions of, well, what does it mean to provide for your family, right? Food, probably, right? Shelter, probably. Clothing, probably. And then you have other tensions. What about health insurance? that's something we should provide. I think when I do premarital counseling, I say you should have health insurance, you should have life insurance. I, I don't I don't have a bible verse to turn to. It's just the tension of providing for your family. Right? And then we could go on and on and like so so what are the things that you... God says, yes, that is providing for your family. And what are the things that you can say, I don't need to do that so I can be more generous over here for the kingdom. uh, Singles don't have that tension. These aren't bad things. It's the reality of having a family. And Paul, I think, is saying, man, as a single man, you can give more of your time, talent, and treasure to the things of eternity. Focus on the Lord. The fourth thing is that singles can be free from the preoccupation of marriage. has some similarities to what I just said. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or the betrothed woman, she's anxious about the things of the Lord, but to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord okay now again i want these are tensions all right I could preach a whole sermon on how um, uh, uh, Ephesians 5 is the responsibility of the man to love his wife as Christ loves the church. If you're married, that's your responsibility. You need to die to self. You need to love your spouse. Ephesians 5, ladies, it's your responsibility to submit to your husband and respect your husband. And that's where your attention has to be because that's the commitment you've made. But a single person doesn't have that responsibility. And I think Paul is giving us that as a a good possibility that you can devote more time to the things of the Lord. And by the way, maybe, let me me address this too. Maybe you're here and you're single again, or you're a young single, and you know your intent of your heart is to eventually get married. Like all that's good. Maybe you're just single for a season. That's okay. I I think the point is, is you can, as a single, you can fixate on Christ and on the things of the Lord. And you should do that. One of the things that makes me nervous is when I meet a single person who is boy crazy or girl crazy. Like, they're single, and their whole preoccupation is to find somebody. And I want to encourage you, like, you don't need to do that. When you do that, you're not, you're not resting in the sovereignty of God. You can fixate on the things of the Lord. You can fixate on serving the Lord. You can fixate on Christ and giving your time, talent, and treasure to serving Christ. And if God is sovereign and He wants you to be married, He's not going to get two years down the road and go, Oh, man, I forgot to introduce them to their spouse. What was I thinking? Their paths, I forgot to cross their paths, right? No, you can fixate on the Lord, and in His sovereignty, if there's someone He would have for you, you'll find that person. And so you can, you can fixate on Christ. God's sovereignty is not going to allow you to miss your spouse. Number five, the fifth thing, is the promise of fathers. And this, is, this verse is a little bit weird, but I think it has some application, okay, because it's, 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 it's written in the context of arranged marriages, okay, which I know in our culture we don't do, but I still think there's an application. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has, it has to be, let him do as he wishes and let them marry. So this, Pastor Andrew dealt with this last week, where Paul says, better to marry than to burn with passion. He says, it's not a sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under his control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Some of your versions here say fathers. That's why I think it's dealing with the idea of arranged marriages. Verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will also do even better, okay? And so in Bible times, and this time in arranged marriages, the father would speak over his daughter, essentially, and say, yes, she is going to be married, or no, she's not going to be married. And I tried this with my 11-year-old recently. I just uh, decided, no, there's no no man good enough for you, and uh, so you'll just be single, okay? So, um, but, the, but this was, cre- as you might imagine, was creating conflict. As girls got older, they would say, hey, you know, I, want, I would like to find a spouse, okay? Now, here's what I think is the application, all right? Um, the application to this is if you pursue singleness, you, you're not burdened with the very big decision of finding a spouse. It's a huge decision, Right? fact we're gonna look in a moment where the scriptures are very clear. Like being married is a permanent earthly covenant. I notice I said permanent earthly and I'll come back to that in a minute. I mean that's a big decision. It's a decision that should be taken seriously. It's a decision that's going to take time. It's a decision that's going to take emotional capacity. It's a decision that you should take seriously. It's a decision that, that you should involve community. There should be some spiritual leaders in your life Say, I'm thinking about marrying this person. It's a decision that's a weighty decision, and it should be weighty. Which, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge believer in, in long-dating relationships. And some of my young people around here know that. I, I usually wait about four weeks when I, I see a solid uh, Christian couple dating. And I'll go, hey, when are you guys getting married? I make it really awkward for them. Uh, that might be a little soon. But I'm not too soon to start asking the question. And, um, and the reason I'm asking that question… Is if two people are mature in Christ, they don't need to date forever and ever and ever. You've either found someone you can marry or you haven't. The purpose of dating is to find a spouse. Not the purpose of dating is not to ease your loneliness. And one of the things that I've seen, I've seen this happen where a couple will date for years and years and years and years and years and years. And the first question I have when I see a couple dating for years and years and years and years is, are you really staying pure? It's extremely difficult, but assuming you are, okay, then you get so knotted up with this person that, you, you know, it's like, well, you know, I'm not sure we're supposed to get married, but we've just been together so long. We've shared so many stories and time and all this together that, like, I've seen couples kind of get married because, like, well, we've just been at it this long. My daughter asked me the other day, she said, uh, you know, how old do you have to be before you can date? And I said, it's not an age thing. It's a maturity thing. It's a maturity thing. I've, made, I've done the weddings of several 18 and 19-year-olds that were very mature and totally ready to get married. And I think sometimes we're like, oh, you've got to wait till you're whatever because, you know, I went through and it was terrible and we were too young. And I would say you were too immature. It's not an age thing. And so, you know, the dating is, is for the purpose. And by the way, I've preached a whole sermon. I said this last service, and I may have stuck my foot in my mouth. I have a sermon I preached on how to find a great mate, and I had some people come up. I'd like to get my hands on that sermon. And so I'm going to do my best to try to track it down and digitize it, which means um, Josh and Joey, if you guys could do that this week. And so, um, and uh, see if I can't get that. So if you're interested in that uh, and I can get it, email me at info, and I'll, I'll try to get that to you, okay? But I think, I think what Paul's saying is like, it's when you start dating someone, or I think an application of this passage, when you start dating someone and you're thinking about getting married, it's a serious decision, it's a weighty decision, it's a decision it takes time. It could be if, you're, if you decide to be single, you could use that time in other places, okay? And so it's a weighty decision. The reason it's a weighty decision is marriage is earthly. It, 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 Paul's saying there's the earthly permanence of marriage, okay? The earthly permanence of marriage. Matthew 22, verse 30. Jesus actually said that there is no marriage or given in marriage in heaven, no marriage or given a marriage. And I don't know exactly what that means. I've had some people that are super happily married, and they're like, does that mean I'm not going to know my spouse? And I'm like, I I think you will. I I don't know, you know. But I will tell you this, if you're in a bad, if you're in a difficult marriage, I got really good news for you. It's just an earthly commitment. It's not an eternal commitment, right? I think it's meatloaf that said, I'd say I'd love you till the end of time. Now I'm praying for the end of time. So, you know, um, it's an (laughs) earthly commitment. But all kidding aside, like, you can honor the Lord for a lifetime, and we should honor the Lord for a lifetime. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, a, a wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, and if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think I, too, have the Spirit of God, and that's Paul being sarcastic to those who are criticizing his ministry, okay? So, um, uh, and so, again, he's talking about the idea of, of permanence. Now let me finish with this, and then I'm share a story, and we'll close with prayer. Um, if you're here this morning and you're single, I do want to acknowledge loneliness is real, and sometimes loneliness pushes us to make decisions that uh, I would I would say sometimes we can look back on and go, "Man, I, I was pushed too hard by loneliness." Loneliness is real; it's not sinful. Adam was lonely in the garden. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2 closely, Adam was told to name the animals. He gets done naming all the animals. He realizes there's no one like me. And God says, man, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll create a helpmate. So loneliness is not sinful. It was the only time in the Garden of Eden things were not good when when Adam didn't have a helpmate. Okay? But I want to encourage you singles with this. Okay? Once you get married... You've made a permanent earthly commitment. And so in your rush to get out of loneliness, if you marry someone that's not following hard after Christ, and you settle out of loneliness, you can now limit all your options. And so my point is, it's possible to be married and be lonely. I have made these commitments under God, and this person, man, they're not working hard in my marriage... And so sometimes we rush in, the, in, in, in being pushed by loneliness. And I want to encourage you, and that's why Paul says here, he says, marry, verse 39, in the Lord. You're free to marry, but in the Lord. Marry another believer. Believers should be marrying believers. And I want to encourage us as a church, okay? One of the things that a, one of the things that a church body does is what I call, what I actually stole this from Pastor Andrew, is to make up the difference. We make up the difference. So if, if, if you're married and you got some singles in your small group, it's your job to make up the difference. Make, make a phone call. Hey, we're going to the movies tonight. Hey, come, why don't you come over for dinner tonight? It's our job to make up the difference for one another and build relationships with our singles. Singles, it's your job to give your time, talent, and treasure to things of the Lord. You can serve in some ministries. You might be able to take on more ministries uh, than, a, than a married person. And in, that, in those ministries, you build relationships and you build community so that the church is there to make up the difference. I called uh, one of our church members. I'll close with this. I just called one of our church members who came back from Bolivia. And I checked on him because I knew he had gotten injured on the trip and he's fine. And we talked about that. And and, then as soon as we got done that, it took him about 10 seconds. And he goes, I adopted another kid. I said, Isn't that like five? He goes, It's seven. I've got seven kids. And, uh, And here's what he means by that. He's a single man, loves the Lord, loves this church. And on his missions trips, because he's got the resourcing, the time, talent, and treasure, over time, he's adopted seven kids. What that means is he provides for them. He, he sponsors them through various programs, okay? And I don't know what it costs him per month, but for each kid, there's a cost per month, and it provides shelter, clothing, education, medical resources, and education, okay? And he provides that for these seven kids. I will tell you this. It's a lot cheaper than my kids. I'm told my kids, you're going to start living on $50 a month, okay? That's, what, that's how that's going to go down. And, uh, and so he, he does that for seven kids. He writes them letters frequently. He communicates to them. He visits them every single year. Takes a trip to Honduras and a trip to Bolivia. Why? Because he wants to go visit and invest in his kids. This is a guy who says, I see my singleness as a benefit. I see my singleness not as a limitation to my spiritual heritage, not that I'll never have any kids. No, I've got seven kids. And I love 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is going back a couple weeks, where the Apostle Paul says, you have countless guides in Christ, but you do not have many fathers. And it's quite possible the Apostle Paul was single, for I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I want to finish with this, singles, I want you to see your singleness as a gift and an opportunity to serve the Lord. And marrieds. I want to heighten your view so that when you're around singles, instead of it being, well, you're single, like that's a problem, see it as an opportunity and heighten your view of singleness. In church, we're here as a body of believers to make up the difference. When someone's lonely, we're here to make up the difference. If we've got a single mom in our church body, some of the dads need to step up and be spiritual fathers. We bear one another's burdens and we make up the difference. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. It's a unique sermon, but I want to pray for the single. I want to pray for the single in this room this morning that has been this week battling loneliness. I pray that they would be encouraged in Christ, and they would see their time and talent and treasure as a unique gift and a unique opportunity to serve Christ in a unique way. I pray for our church, God, that we would be aware of the needs around us, and we would, when you give us opportunity and awareness, we would make up the difference. So that the world would know, man, there's something different about that group of people, and what's different is we're worshipers of Christ. Thank you for this teaching. Thank you for your word, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.